Grace, mercy, and the peace of God our Father and our Lord Jesus be and abide with you this day. Amen. This weekend is Labor Day, and six months ago when when all this started to happen and and things were closing down and the schools were not going to be convening, so the kids were going to have to do remote learning, and and that was going to go on for some weeks, right? It was like three weeks. We're going to do this for three weeks and then everything should be okay. And here we are six months later, and summer is over. Well, for the kids, summer's been over for a few weeks already. They've been doing school again uh, since the middle of August. But here we are. It's, it's Labor Day weekend, and you know this holiday is more than, than the end of summer, uh, I guess, somewhat officially, um, and, and the last day for, for donning white. So get that in today or tomorrow, I guess, because after Labor Day, you're not supposed to anymore. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but that's the, that's the rule. What's that? Oh, it meant you were still vacationing at your summer cottage, so that's what it used to mean. And now I've just learned something. Paula read that recently, and so, so I'm learning, and maybe this is something you're learning as well. So vacation time is over. Time to get back to work, I guess. You know, Labor Day... Uh, meaning, you know, we're back to work now, somehow, whatever. Anyway, the Department of Labor website um, describes Labor Day as a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country. So it's a time we focus on the efforts that people are making. And that's going to be our focus, actually, for the month of September. We begin a new series this morning called the obedience of faith. It's a phrase that's found in Romans, the obedience of faith. As Paul wrote this, um, this epistle, this write and this letter that captures, encapsulates uh, a, a huge amount of the theology that we believe, the, the, the doctrine that, we, that our faith is structured uh, by is, in, is found in Romans, a lot of it. And so um, he uses this phrase at the beginning and end of this book. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And at the end of the book, in chapter 16, verses 25 and 26, he says, Now to him, that is to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. So the bookends of this fantastic writing of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, contain this phrase, the obedience of faith. But the question is, what, do, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do, we, how do we reconcile that? How do we live the Christian life is really uh, what Paul is getting at there. How do we strive now toward the obedience of faith. Well, in order to understand that and unpack that, we need to start here. We are saved by grace through faith. This series and this exploration of living the Christian life isn't going to in any way go counter to that, um, that baseline. That is where we are. That is what we believe. We believe we are saved by grace through faith. We are sinners who need a Savior. That is the truth about our lives. That is the truth about God's love for us in Jesus. That we are sinners 
And we need then to humble ourselves in order to enter the kingdom of God. This is what happens in Matthew 18. As, as the apostles, the, the, the disciples at that point, they come to Jesus and they start asking questions. These are guys who have seen some miracles happen. And in our last series, we were talking about miracles. And, and just, you know, re, in recent um, history, as far as the narrative seems to flow, that, that these guys have seen Jesus feed 5,000 people and heal the sick and walk on water and still the storm and all these things that Jesus did. And they come to him and say, well, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Like, how, how do you get there to that question if you've seen all this that's happened, the things that Jesus has done, and if you've been with him through some of the things that he has taught and said and spoken, and now you're asking a question that doesn't really make sense. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, Jesus turns it on its head completely and brings a child to stand in the middle of the, of the people and says, you know, of the disciples. And he's like, unless you become like a child... You, you don't even enter, let alone the greatest. Are you kidding? Be like a kid. Now, here's the thing. What Jesus isn't saying is be childish. <laughs> That's not what he means. And interestingly, now children were adored by their families and loved by their, you know, even communities and extended family. But to use a child as an example was, that, that's not done in in the first century. That's not done in Jesus' time. So, so this is a, a kind of mind-blowing moment for people who are around him. You, you need to humble yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. Recognize your humble dependence on God in order to enter the kingdom. Are you worried about being the greatest? Don't worry about that. Worry about humbling yourself in order to even enter the kingdom. The disciples' question is, is misguided arrogance. And a lot of times that's where we find ourselves in, in this idea that, that we're able to do things, that we're able to you know, be acceptable in God's eyes by things that we do. Or that now that you know, he has, has his hands on me, he's called me, he's you know, placed me in this position, I'm going to do great things in his kingdom. There are people who do great things in the kingdom, and, and great things for the kingdom, and, and the Holy Spirit is using people. This is how it works. But to go into you know, the presence of God with this attitude that I'm the greatest, um, that's, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Recognize your dependence on God, on Jesus. We're sinners who need a Savior. We're people who need grace. We're people who need mercy. And the good news is this, God's grace covers our sin. God's grace covers our sins. We have the forgiveness of Jesus. He suffered on our behalf. The first song of our worship uh, today was Reckless Love, and it, it talks in there um, about Jesus would leave the 99. And, and you can find that in Matthew 18, where Jesus asks the question, if you have a hundred sheep and one goes astray, don't you leave the 99 and go after that one who is lost? Jesus did just that. He, he pursues us. He tracks us down and by his grace finds us, claims us, brings us back. That's grace. 
In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. There's kind of a play on words that happens in Matthew 18 in the first part of it. The disciples are asking about who's the greatest, and Jesus brings a child to put in the midst of them. And, and he talks about, you know, become like a child, and he uses the word child a few times. But then he shifts to a different term, little ones. Little ones no longer means the child or children or people who are young, but little ones meaning all of us who are dependent on him. All of us who share this need for his grace to cover us. He's not willing that any of us, any of us as little ones would be lost. And so we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words are in Romans 13, verse 14, part of our reading for today. That we would put on Christ. Elsewhere, Paul gives us this this concept of being wrapped, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That, that we're that like put on like a robe of righteousness. Like we wear Jesus is, is how, it, how that expression um, works. It's like we're clothed in his righteousness, so our filthy rags no longer are what God sees. Instead, we put on Christ. We're covered in his grace. And we receive that gift through faith in Jesus. So the obedience of faith starts with faith. Faith comes first. We can't have the obedience of faith unless faith is there to begin with. So it's not obedience from our will, obedience from our power, obedience from our strength, our, our willingness, our fortitude, our internal, we've struggled with this and we're going to overcome That's not where it starts. It starts with faith. We believe in Jesus. We're saved by grace through faith. That's found in Ephesians chapter 2. But now what? Luther fought pretty hard for that concept. In Luther's time, in the 16th century, the church had fallen into this uh, idea, this concept that people you know, were contributing to their salvation through the things they did, through their faithfulness, through their obedience, that it was part of how, how it worked, how salvation worked, that God did some and you had to do the rest. That God did his part and extended grace to you, but you had to participate in that. So it was kind of a, a ladder, a stair step approach or an idea where God did a little, you did a little. Then God did some more and you could do some more. And Luther came to that and said, that doesn't make any sense because now we're always burdened with, have I done enough? And God's word teaches differently, that we're saved not by what we do, not by our works, but by his grace alone. The issue with that, the problem with that, the the way the pendulum swung after that is that there were people who overemphasized grace to the point of, and the churchy word for it is antinomianism. The, The Greek word for law is nomos. It's in the middle of this word. Anti, you know what that means. Nomos meaning law. So antinomian meaning against the law. That we're opposed now to the law of God, so we don't have to obey. We don't have to do anything. If we can't contribute, then we don't have to do a single thing. 
We don't have to lift a finger. We don't have to participate in this. We don't have to even keep the law in any way. But here's the problem with that. The law still stands. We can't ignore the commands of God as if obedience isn't necessary or important. The things we do are important. The law still stands. Romans chapter 13, verse 9 says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we'll get to the love part in just a moment, but recognize this. What Paul's not saying is the commandments, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not um, steal, covet, etc., whatever commandments there are, they don't apply anymore. He never says that. He never says that the law is done and we don't have to even pay attention to it in any way. The law still stands because temptation abounds. In Matthew 18, at verse 7, we heard these words, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. The temptations are going to come. Temptations are going to happen. Those things must happen. But woe to the one through whom temptation comes. See, temptation is going to find us from time to time. But the law shows us where the boundaries are. So that when temptation is is pulling us in a direction and and wanting us to, to follow, the law says... Now you stop here. This, this, is the, this is the limit. And when you cross that line, that's that you've fallen into sin. So the law shows us that. The law also displays in us a need for forgiveness. The law is like a mirror in that way. This is, Luther created this idea. There's three uses of the law. The, the, the boundary, the curb, and the second use is the mirror. And it shows us our need. If we didn't know the law, if we didn't understand God's uh, holiness and his sovereignty and also his, his order and how he calls us to be and what's right and what's wrong, if he didn't embed that in us, and we all have it, it's, it's written on our hearts. Even if we've never learned the commandments, everybody has this, the, the same basic concept across history and culture and location. We all have this built-in conscience that says this is right, this is wrong. This is where the law comes and is still in us. It still applies. It's still important. So if we wander into temptation too many times, we could get stuck there or comfortable there. This is, this is part of the issue. This is why it's important because sin is serious. Sin is serious. Paul writes in verse 12 of Romans 13, cast off the works of darkness. And then he includes a brief list. It's including drunkenness and immorality and quarreling and jealousy. This is, this is not even nearly complete, right? But he's maybe listing things that are, are you know, evident in the, the Roman culture at that time, evident in the people that he's addressing with this letter. But, you know, what if he were writing today? Cast off the works of darkness, division, inequality, um, 
violence, oppression. What is it that, that he would write to us in our time, in our culture? We need to cast that off because sin is, sin is like a cancer that needs to be removed. Sin's like, you know, this, this indwelling, um, destructive part of us that could grow and overtake us. It needs to be removed. So let's talk about hands and eyes. Matthew 18 has this part in it that, that we hear and we think, what? What is Jesus really saying? If your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, this is in verses 8 and 9, cut it off, throw it away, gouge it out, throw it away. Now, Jesus is not calling you to pull out whatever instrument you might have to maim yourself or blind yourself. This is hyperbole. But what he's demonstrating is the importance of it. Jesus said similar in Matthew chapter 5, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Almost the same, um, the way he structures it and the way he says it. And in both places, he's really just exhibiting the, the importance and the danger of sin. It is serious. Maiming ourselves, blinding ourselves doesn't make us righteous. And where would we stop, right? My hand, where do, I, where do I stop amputating? We'd end up with nothing left. Because sin is that serious, we need to, we need to remove it. The root of sin should be taken seriously. So where do we find that? What do we need to excise? Maybe it's familiar habits. Maybe it's things that we, that we kind of put a toe in, right? I can just, I can do a little of this. I can give in to this temptation just a little bit because I can, I can resist it in time, right? I'll, I'll, I, won't, I won't go too far, but I'm going to go a little bit. Maybe it's easy choices, taking the easy road that, that isn't, isn't the best way. Maybe it's in relationships that we have that are, are not edifying of our faith and building us up as believers in Jesus and disciples of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of ways in which our lives can be shaped and transformed by the things that we do, the habits that we have, the temptation we give into, the relationships that we share in, and what do we need as disciples of Jesus to remove in order to be healthier, stronger, dare I say better, disciples? Not better in terms of who's the greatest, let's not go back to that, but better in terms of are we following Jesus the best we can, striving to be disciples who fulfill the law. Because that's what he's calling us toward. Fulfill the law. Practice the obedience of faith. As we lay the foundation for this entire series, I want to talk about three reasons why this is important. To practice the obedience of faith. This is the, 
Again, the, the expression that Paul uses, the obedience of faith. There's three reasons, I think, at least. There's probably several more that we could, that we could think of. Um, but three reasons this morning why that's important. The one is to bear the fruit of repentance. Jesus, a number of times, um, when, he, when he interacts with a person, at the end, toward the end of the interaction, he'll say something to the effect of, go and sin no more. Now, I'm pretty sure Jesus knows that the people that he's talking to aren't going to go and live lives of complete and utter holiness from that moment forward. I'm pretty sure Jesus knows our human nature, and so as he says, go and sin no more, he's not really expecting that, that that person, that that man, that woman, will then go and live perfect, holy lives from that moment forward. What is he saying? Go exhibit the obedience of faith or the fruit of repentance. Imagine it this way. Let's say you're, you're going down the road and you got your music on and, and you know, you're feeling good and you're happy and you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful day. The smoke is gone, um, which it is, which I'm grateful for. And you know, the sun is shining and it's like, you know, it's a Friday afternoon, and, and it's a weekend. It's a three-day weekend. It's a holiday weekend, and you're time for some fun. So how fast are you going? <laughs> Probably a little excess of the speed limit, maybe, right? And you pass one of those cars that has lights on the top or in the grill, and ugh. And you get pulled over, and the police officer, he's feeling pretty good, too, because he's also got a three-day weekend. And, and so, you know, you say, you know what, officer? I was just, I was happy. I was just not paying attention. And the officer shows you some mercy and, and lets you off with a warning. And so, you, you know, start your engine again. The police officer walks back to his car, and you're going to go on your way, and do you, at that point, do you, do you just gun it and go as fast as you can driving away from that police officer? Probably not. <laughs> right? Because that's not exhibiting the fruit of repentance. Or, or maybe, um, maybe this has happened to you, where the visa bill got kind of stuck in the pile of, laun- of, of, of mail. I almost said laundry. We got piles of that too, but... Um, Hopefully the visa bill is not in the pile of laundry. <laughs> They're laughing right over here, out loud. So, so the visa bill gets stuck in the pile of mail and ignored, and the due date comes, and you miss it by just like you write the check the day that it's supposed to be received. And you know, oh, what's going to happen? And there's a couple days of, of the mail, and, and so when the next bill comes and there's a a late fee and some interest on it, and ah, uh, if it just I had paid that on time. Have you ever done this where you call them and you say, you know what, I, I messed up, I, you know, mail was delayed and I didn't, couldn't get it written on time, and it said, you, you can explain yourself, and if this is something that happens rarely, you can give it a try. They might waive your late fee. I've had that happen. And... Um, when I get off the phone after having done that, and I've done it a couple of times, Paul will say, oh, you schmooze those people. So, you know, that person shows you some mercy and some grace and, and waves a late fee. Well, 
What happens if the next month you're late again? How likely are they to, to waive the fee? How's, how does our response exhibit repentance? This is why fulfilling the law, practicing the obedience of faith is important, to bear the fruit of repentance. Second reason why it's important is because God is glorified. God is glorified when his people are obedient by faith. Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You, as believers in Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Now, when he says that, he's not saying, allow your light to shine. It's a third-person imperative, which in English is complicated. But he's saying, he's commanding the light within us to shine so that, why? In verse 16, it says this, they, other people, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As the light in us shines, as we follow Jesus, God gets glory, even from people who don't yet know him. So we bear the fruit of repentance. God is glorified. And the third reason is this, because actions speak louder than words, right? Our witness is impacted by the way that we live. Our ability to share the love of Christ to other people is is impacted by the choices that we make. Imagine this. Your neighbor knows you're a believer, but maybe overhears your angry phone conversation. And you choose words that you use that aren't indicative of your faith in Jesus. Have you ever had that kind of situation happen? You know, temptation's going to happen. That's in Matthew 18. So sometimes we fall into that. But isn't our witness impacted when we do? Right? Or maybe your boss is aware that you're a believer, but your effort is maybe lacking, or your integrity is questionable in the workplace. Does that help our witness as believers? Nah, it doesn't. So as we practice the obedience of faith, it's part of our opportunity to live such lives that people understand, that people who don't yet know Jesus see what this looks like as we're people of integrity, people of character, people of obedience. And so here's how we fulfill the law. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in verses 8 and 10. Love one another. Love one another. Fulfill the law. How do you do that? Love one another. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Goes on in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love others. First, among the family of believers. Let's love one another in Christ. As the people of God gathered in this virtual space, we can love one another. We can reach out to one another when we know someone's hurting, when we know someone's struggling with something. We can love and encourage that person. But not just the family of faith. We're called to love people, even those who are hard to love. You know anybody hard to love? I know some of, some, some of us thought names. <laughs> people in our lives that are difficult, that are complicated, that are struggle to even engage with, we're called to love. 
even those people. We're called to seek the erring brother and sister. This is what Matthew 18 goes on to talk about, is when someone has sinned against you, we don't start by shunning that person or by getting even. No, we seek out that person and try to restore their faithful following. If you Go read it in that context, imagining what happens when someone has sinned against you and how can we love that person? How can we win that person back? Extend forgiveness. This is how we can love one another. In the next part of Matthew 18, the disciples say, well, then how many times are we supposed to forgive? Because, well, you know, three or four times is about the limit. And Jesus basically says there's no limit to the forgiveness that we offer. How do we love one another? Bless others. Love your neighbor. Serve your community. Right now, as we're still sheltering in place, at least in this county, as we're still kind of restricted to things we can do, maybe there's someone who's, who's in need. Maybe there's someone who needs a little help, needs you to go run to the store and pick something up, needs you to share something that you have, you know, that they can use right now today. Maybe there's someone in your community, in your neighborhood, whom you can show love to just by connecting, just by being available for a, you know, socially distanced conversation from the sidewalk to their front porch. How can we bless each other? Next week, we're going to talk about how we can bless people in the name of Jesus, especially people who have deep, deep need. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. We are saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. We respond to that grace by obedience that is rooted in that faith. And we share that grace through love. Let's fulfill the law. Let's practice the obedience of faith. Let's be God's people living such lives that our faith is evident and clear. In the name of Jesus. Amen.